we have a mandate in this culture, particularly as Black folks, to, to, uh, to make sure that our narratives don't make white people too uncomfortable. And so there has to be a commitment to truth telling that isn't predicated upon whether, whether you feel bad or not is up to you. The truth is here. What I say is that we're compassionate truth tellers. This is Four People with Bishop Rob Wright. Hello, everyone. This is Bishop Rob Wright, and this is Four People. Uh, today, we have a special treat. We are with my dear friend, Dr. Catherine Meeks, who is the executive director of the Absalom Jones Center of Racial Healing. Uh, Dr. Meeks' uh, work at, with Absalom Jones is an extension of the Diocese of Atlanta, the ministry of the Diocese of Atlanta. Uh, Dr. Meeks, good to hear from you. Good to see you. Thank you. It's really good to be here. Uh, for those of you who don't know uh, about this uh, about this wonderful woman in our midst, uh, she holds a PhD from Emory University. Her master's work uh, is in uh, social work, and it's from Clark Atlanta University. Uh, she is an author, uh, and I would say she is one who uh, who uh, walks it like she talks it who has found a way to do what Stevie Wonder told us to do, which is to turn our words into truth and then turn that truth into love. So I'm, I'm so glad that we're here together. You and I have been working together closely for a number of years, trying to do what we believe the gospel invites us to do. And that is to figure out how to tell the truth in love about our very complicated American family story. So so for those who don't know, Catherine, how do you come to this work? Why, why of all the things in the world you could do with that bright mind, why are you doing this? You know, I ask myself that. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good to be with you, Bishop Rob, and thank yeah. you. I want the audience to hear me say thank you for your amazing support for this work, because I would not be able to do it if I didn't have that. So thank you. Since when I was a little girl growing up in Arkansas, living on a sharecropping farm with my father who was unlettered, I've stopped calling him illiterate because he just couldn't read or write, but he was definitely not illiterate. And my mom who graduated from college the year that I graduated from high school, growing up in that environment of poverty and impoverishment, there was something in me that said, you can be free. You can be free and you were put here to be free. But there are all the structures around me said, no, you can't be. You have a place and you're supposed to fill it. And I never accepted that. So I've spent my life resisting that, that uh, cultural construct of imprisonment. And it's led me down this road. It led me to look for what does it take to be a free African-American woman in America? That is the organizing question in my soul. And in trying to answer that question for myself, it's led me into this work now for 50 years. Wow. And, you know, I, I've been talking in, in various, over various for, sort of platforms. I've been talking about this, this liberative call of the gospel, which is to be free, to throw off fetters of every, of every kind. You know, um, you know, sort of beyond your, your, uh, your being an author and all those sorts of things, for me, of all the things I've heard you talk about over the years, it was it's the story 
your family story uh, of your father and your brother uh, that just, I, I, I don't forget that. You, you, it, it stays in, in front of my mind. Can you share that, if you don't mind, just uh, um, with the listeners? Oh, of course. Uh, and thank you for holding that story in your, in your heart. That means a lot to me. My father, as I just said, could neither read nor write. And he used to carry me with him when he had to sign a document as a little kid. And he would make an X and I would write his name. But he would let me sit on his lap and read to him, even though for a long time I didn't know he didn't know what I was reading. But the fact that he was willing to support that process for me, even as a person who couldn't read, had an amazing impact upon me. And then my brother, of course, was uh, at 12 years old, got sick, and daddy took him to the uh, local hospital that refused to see him because they were black and poor. And by the time daddy could get uh, somebody to take him to Shreveport, which was like 80 miles away. My brother had a ruptured appendix and died. And I watched my father live with post-traumatic stress syndrome from the death of my brother for the rest of his life. He talked about Garland almost every day. It was as if Garland had just died the day before. The grief of it, he never recovered from. And I think that watching him go through that cemented my resolve that I will not be dependent upon this culture. I will not put myself in a place where they could kill me or somebody that I care about. My father could not do anything about that. He did the best he could, but I don't think he ever forgave himself for not being able to save Garland. And he was overprotective of us. And I was this bright little wanting to go to the horizon and daddy saying, no, I got to keep you at home so you can grow up and be a, a grown person. So there was always this friction of me wanting to go further than he wanted me to go. But that, but now I understand that so much better than I did then. He was just not trying to lose another child. And God bless the memory of Garland. Um, you, you know, what occurred to me when I first you heard you tell that story, we were we were co-leading a, a group when you, when I heard you first tell that story, is is that um, what work did you have to do? You know, you and I always talk about people doing their work. What what work did you have to do to not allow that to to um, fundam fundamentally make you a bitter woman um, and uh, and um, and someone uh, who wants to get vengeance. How, what, what work did you have to do to be able to process uh, Garland's death and, and really, in some manner of speaking, your dad's death at that moment and turn that into wanting to be a healer? Well, you know, I think the, the, the basic question for me was always how to be free, how to be free. And you cannot be free if you're seeking vengeance because you hold yourself, you're imprisoned by whatever it is you're hating. And so I sought to, to be free and got introduced to Jesus. And then Jesus really helped me on that journey. <laughs> and and I, I, as a little kid, I used to get up and go sit outside and watch the sunrise when I was eight years old and pray, even though I didn't have much of a concept of who I was praying to. Still don't sometimes, actually. But the thing of it is that there was this this understanding that there's a world, that there's somebody in this world that cares, in this universe that cares. And so I didn't read the Bible a lot until I was in college, but 
I just kept going in that direction toward God as a, even as a kid and as a teenager, and and was pretty faithful all the time in in trying to say, well, okay, what's God got to do with any of this? That is the reason for not being bitter. In addition to when I got to college, I met three white people who were real Christians, and that was a real salvation. They were real Christians. They accepted me just like I was. They didn't try to make me white. They didn't try to clean me up. They just let me be myself, and they loved me and supported me. And and they were the first three white people that I ever had a relationship with. And they taught me that I could actually love white people, which I had no reason to ever think was possible from the experiences I'd had in Arkansas. So I think that was a, an, um, that again, here's God looking after me. I mean, I consider everything that's happened in my life to be the result of God's intention for me to be a free person and to do this work that I'm doing. So when I take all that into consideration, hatred is not going to be one of the things that I spend my energy on and and seeking vengeance because it doesn't get you anywhere in the first place. And it certainly isn't going to help solve anything. And it wouldn't make me any better, even if I could go back and do something to somebody who who, uh, was responsible for my brother's death. You know, Dr. King said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, he said, I'm going to stick with love because hatred's price is just too high. Absolutely. And, and I, I, I think I think he did an exceptional job not only talking about, um, you know, what racism does to, uh, to those who are being oppressed, uh, you know, because of racism. He did a really wonderful job in reflecting about what racist systems do to the people who, uh, who enjoy the benefits of those systems. I, I think when we talk about this, we talk about the victims, and we should, um, but we don't talk about this, this other thing, which is, is that this, this, this thing that we do uh, to one another uh, is as old as the scriptures and as new as the headlines. And, and no one gets away free. Uh, it costs everybody and everybody is diminished as long as this thing exists in our world. Um, and so it's, it's, it's wonderful to have met in my life. And as you have just said, people who, who have decided that, you know, to try to figure out how to walk as close as they can with Jesus and, and allow that to be difference making. I mean, that it really is extraordinary. And thank God for the people who, who do that, um, who are doing that, who have purposed themselves to be about, you know, to be about that work. Our work together, yours and mine, in the center, Absalom Jones Center, is really about inviting people into what I love you say, which is really into a brave space. And And the brave space is about reflecting on the ways in which we have colluded with and are perpetuating uh, systems of of uh, uh, of captivity, uh, known by another name, uh, systematic racism, um, and and you have enjoyed some some wonderful effectiveness with this work. Uh, you, you may have some updated numbers, but at last count, I think we had positively impacted uh, more than sixty dioceses out of the one hundred and nine dioceses in the Episcopal Church. 
We still have the only curriculum for young people about anti-racism and becoming beloved community. Um, in our jurisdiction, you have invited many congregations into conversations uh, about the ways in which racism and systematic racism, you know, is still alive. Tell us some of the things you, you know, a couple of things that come to mind. What have you learned in doing this work? It's one thing to have all this big theory and to read all these wonderful people who have talked about this over the hundreds of years. But what, what have you learned on the ground with all kinds of people about this work? Well, the, the most important thing is to tell the truth. You know, we have a we have a mandate in this culture, particularly as black folks, to to uh, to make sure that our narratives don't make white people too uncomfortable. And so there has to be a commitment to truth telling that isn't predicated upon whether whether you feel bad or not is up to you. The truth is here. And we tell what I say is that we're compassionate truth tellers. And I have stuck with that with the belief that we do not have to nuance our truth telling in, in exchange for money. We will get the money we need to do the work we need to do if we stay faithful and if we tell the truth. And that's been one of the things that I've held on to deep in my heart and it's worked so well. We have done incredibly well with this notion of a brave space where we tell the truth. And what I have experienced is people People's response said, we're so glad this is a place like this where the hospitality is unmistakable and the commitment to truth telling is clear and they feel welcome in that space. So I've just, I'm just really convinced that if, if in the faith communities, we would just say, we're going to do what Jesus told us to do and see what God will do with that that we would be amazed at what would happen in this world. But we're so worried that if we do what we're supposed to do, somebody won't like it and somebody will not pay their pledge or whatever, rather than if we do what God is asking us to do and God doesn't support us, then we need to find out what it was God wanted us to do and, and go try to do that. So that attitude has been um really reinforced for me. And recently I've just gotten into this whole area of talking about the relationships of black women and white women and some of the dynamics that we don't want to talk about because they're really so painful. And what and and in the beginning it was pretty tough. I mean there were people that I was speaking to who didn't quite know what to do with what I said. But about three weeks later, some of those women contacted me to say, when you did that presentation we didn't know how to respond, but we heard you and we appreciate your willingness to be courageous and vulnerable. And we know we've got a lot of work to do. So I, it just it's completely, you know, Bishop Rob, it's not easy for me to stand up in public and tell the truth that I need to tell. That is not easy. If somebody thinks that's easy, they're mistaken. But it's the only way to speak out of a place of vulnerability and compassion that 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 is that is that is harder to argue with than if you're just standing up being theoretical and analytical. Thank you for listening to Four People with special guest Dr. Catherine Meeks. Keep up with her work at centerforracialhealing.org. Link in episode description. We also encourage you to watch her preach this Sunday, May 22nd, at the National Cathedral. You can keep up with four people on IG and Facebook at Bishop Rob Wright. 
And now back to four people. You know, you, you, you remind me of uh, what Jesus said. It's captured in John's uh, gospel, the eighth chapter. If you uh, abide in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And everybody remembers the last part about that, but they don't remember the first part about it, which is if you abide in my word, you'll get to know something about my reliable nature, as Jesus is telling his friends. And I think that's what we've learned at the center was because I remember when you and I sat on a couch uh, in my office and sort of started talking out loud this possibility. And through a lot of hard work, uh, mostly yours, and a lot of hard work by some other people, we have we have uh, embarked on this journey, and the journey is bearing, you know, is bearing fruit. Uh, so much fruit uh, that uh, you ha- have been named the Joseph R. Biden Lifetime Achievement Award and Presidential Volunteer Service Award. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's pretty tremendous that you have been awarded this presidential distinction uh, for this volunteer work. And so, so for those out there who are who are wondering, is this God trustworthy? Uh, this God is trustworthy. Uh, and, and Catherine and, and, and I, among many, can say, you know, if you follow this course with God, you don't know always where you're going and where you think you're going is not always where you end up. But God That's will right. show God's self, right? That's <laughs> right. So I love the spotlight uh, that this award for you shines on this work. And my, my real hope is that those who are less likely to get involved you know, might now through this lens, you know, get involved. Yes. Yes. And I think people have to be careful. You you have to go do the work because you can't help yourself, because you're called, because you're being obedient. And then if 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 you get, you know, this is a big surprise to me that I've got this award and and but I'm so excited and, and grateful for it. But if I had spent my time trying to see you know, which soundbite's going to get published in which news program, I would not have done the work. And I've, I watch people get preoccupied with outcomes rather than staying faithful because my job to worry about outcomes is my job to be faithful. And it's up to God to do whatever God chooses with that faithfulness. And I have watched that now. I'm 76 years old. I've watched that all my life. And so I'm, 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 well, I feel like I'm about 45, actually. And I, and I did realize the other day that the soul does not age. Therefore, no wonder I feel this good. But, you know, I've, I mean, I've been here all these years, but I do feel really good. And part of that's because I'm really doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm yeah. clear about that. Yeah. And, you know, there's always some joy that goes with that. We don't talk about that. It's the, the, the joy that can only come to the to the to, to those who are abound and determined to be faithful. Yes. Right. There, there is a joy there. Uh, that is God's promise, uh, you know, to us. You know why this work is so important uh, is because without uh, us uh, uh, trying to look truthfully at our complicated story as Americans, for instance, our, our complicated story as an American family, because that is who we are, um, you know, then there's no real progress. And, you know, it, it alarms me, frankly, it disappoints me and alarms me. And it's tragic that even as you and I speak right now, uh, there are states and there are boards of education 
that are uh, legislating um, so that we won't look back. Because uh, so much of our work, uh, you know, that accrues to progress has to do with looking back um, without condemnation, shame, or guilt, but looking back and asking ourselves, well, what did we do and what can we learn and how can we make, uh, you know, tomorrow, you know, better? Uh, you know, it's all over the news. People are talking about CRT as if CRT is this uh, abominable snowman coming down from the mountains who's going to snatch our children. You know, it's absurd. It's absurd. But there's there's real fear out there uh, about looking back, especially as it regards race. Yes. What, what, do, you, what, yes. Do, you, what do you say what? to that? The first thing I have to say is what I've said many times is I'm sick and tired of that conversation about CRT because critical race theory is a legal uh, entity that's only taught in law schools and graduate schools. So no elementary school child is ever going to hear of it. And most elementary school teachers have never heard of it. So, so you mean my, whole, my second grader is safe right now, right? I believe so. <laughs> so this whole debate is, is gaslighting. It's just strict gaslighting. And I wish the media would refuse to ever say those words again. That would be real responsibility on their part to say, this discussion is over. We're never going to talk about this because it's a ridiculous discussion. The issue is people knowing for a fact that things have, have are changing and are going to con continue to change. White people are scared to death when they go looking under every rock to find a boogeyman and they need to stop and take a good look at their souls and look inside of themselves and see what is this fear really about? Because it's certainly not about CRT. It is about the truth being told and you having to reimagine who you are. You know, if you, you built your, your image of yourself on a set of false premises, that's the fear that maybe this whole construct that we've got in place isn't really what it ought to be. I think that intuitively people know that. I do believe, I have always believed that no white person has ever felt really good about slavery and lynching and all of those things. Because I think there's something in the psyche of a human being that says you just shouldn't treat other human beings that way. But if you ignore all of that and build a whole system that oppresses and tries to run the world in favor of yourself on a false set of premises, you have a right to be afraid that if somebody tells the truth about that, it'll all go down like a paper, you know, like a, 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 a something that's not constructed on a good foundation. So the, the indefensible uh, systemic racism in this country is based upon a, on a, a foundation that cannot stand. And I think that that's what the fear, that's part of the fear. And look at how much the fear gets uh, it, um, promoted. I mean, we, here we are in, in this, in this present moment with all this stuff going on. That's a, a completely ridiculous, completely. You know, James Baldwin said that America is addicted uh, to a sense of innocence, um, you know, and, and, but we're not innocent, um, you know, a, a mature way to look at our American history is to realize is that it is checkered. We, we have had some amazing, amazing 
days, months, years, decades as Americans when we lived out the very best of our ideals and we've had some some uh, very bad days, uh, weeks, months, years, uh, centuries where we have betrayed the ideals that we said were our ideals. Um, but but there's a great fear, Catherine, as you know, you know, and, and that fear gets messaged like, um, well, what's the point of looking back now? That was then, and this is 2022. Uh, I didn't do those things, um, you know, and so they, 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 I don't have to bring them forward in any way. I don't have to go back and learn from that. That was then. This is now. What do you say to that? Well, if that's the case, then why do you, why does it bother you to look back if you've worked worked it all out? I just feel like it hasn't been worked out, and that's. I mean, if you were okay with it, you wouldn't care. The fact that folks are railing against the history is a good sign that the history needs to be looked at and interrogated in the first place. And in the second place, you can't deny history, whether it's personal history or collective history. Whatever has happened has happened. And if you and you know de Tocqueville said, if you don't pay attention to it, you just get to repeat it. And that's what we're doing. We're repeating it because we keep on trying to deny it. So, you know, I say to people who say that, that's that is not a that is a position that does not work in reality if you want to be well. Now you can hold any position you like, but you do have to decide how well do you want to be? And if you try to deny your personal history or the cultural history, you are choosing to that extent not to be well. And white people need to get that really straight in their heads because they have been so wounded by all of this stuff and don't seem to even catch a glimpse of that most of the time. And so my biggest thing now in most of my writing and talking is to say to white people, we're all wounded. So let's get off of this. You're the victim. I've come to help you. No, we're wounded and we're looking for bandage closets together. Well, let's talk about that, because in these kinds of conversations, you know, we can focus on white brothers and sisters. Um, And, you know, but there's work for everybody to do here. I try to remind remind people that, you know, uh, we've been in this country since 1619 uh, as by and large as non-free people brought here, stolen personhood, stolen labor. And that has had a profound effect on on people of color, descendants of Africa, uh, to say nothing of Native Americans. But in, in terms of the way we walk, in terms of the way we talk, in terms of the way we see ourselves, what we see in the mirror, how we value the thing we see in the mirror, et cetera. So, so say a little bit about the work for, uh, for those of us who are descendants uh, of, of, of Africa uh, and who are living in these United States with all of so this complicated history. We, the, the, it used to be called internalized depression. We've now started calling it racialized trauma. This year, this entire year, the theme the center is working with is racialized trauma because we as descendants of our ancestors enslavement have got to deal with how we have been wounded. And I'm really fascinated by how has that historically wounding process, how is it continuing to visit us in the present moment? because we can see that it is. So what is the the nature of that? Pardon me. And I think that it's hard for us as Black people 
to really engage with that idea because it makes us think we're not okay. But we will we are okay. We will be more okay if we look that truth in the face. So we're holding that we're holding that lens, that that mirror up for this entire year. And that's how that's how critical I think that work is to be done. You know, I'm glad you said that because I've had tried to have uh, conversations about about race in groups that have been largely white and met real reluctance and reticence. And I've been in conversations in groups that have been largely people of color and been met with the same kind of, you know, reluctance and resistance. So, so there is, you know, in, in, in the human body and the human psyche spirit, some kind of way, a real reluctance to look back at anything that is unflattering and, and yet real spiritual maturity, I believe, uh, comes, uh, in the ability to, to take, you know, all sort of parts of the data, you know, the flattering and the unflattering together and hold it together. And, and so it is a white thing and it's a black thing. It's a human thing. That's right. And, and the fact of the matter is, if particularly in communities of faith, if you say you believe the truth will set you free, then why are you running from the truth? Do you not want to be free? So so I always go back to Jesus at the pool of Bethsaida asking that man, do you want to be healed? You know, because for me, that's the fundamental question that you have got to ask, because then if you say yes, then you do what is necessary. But if you can't say yes, of course, then you get to try to play these denial games and whatever. But but there, it, it's not even negotiable. It is just a clear thing that if you want to be free, you've got to tell the truth. And you've got to be seeking the truth and willing to engage with the truth. And maybe not all of it in one day, but because it is a process, you know, right. you, get to, you get to take it in incrementally. But the main thing is to be open, to stay curious and to quit thinking everything is about you. You know, I mean, there's a there's a body, there's a whole bunch of stuff out here that's true that that you don't have to take personally. You can understand it and be helped by it and go on with your life. And I think people personalize things sometimes too much that we need to be a little bit more able to look at something in a more global collective sense in order to find where we stand in it. And we don't have to see everything as a personal threat, which is what people of color do as well as white people with yeah. historical truth. Well, that's another marker, isn't it? I mean, you know, St. Paul says, one of my favorite quotes from St. Paul says is that, uh, you know, when I was a child, I thought, spoke and understood as a child. But when I became a man, when I became a woman, I put away childish things. I think one of the things that maturity begs us, especially Christian maturity begs us to do, is to be able to be curious when we want to be defensive. Right. So in the, in those moments, and by the way, that works at home too, you know, is, is, to, is, to, is to try to be curious rather than defensive. Um, but, you know, we get triggered um, because what we think is being said in these conversations is my ancestors were weak. Uh, they lacked virtue. Uh, they were they were murderers and rapists and rogues. And uh, and, and so, you know, I get wrapped around the axle of that. And I don't I don't it's hard for me to get the cognitive space to begin to think about the ways in which um, uh, systems were built uh, and uh, systems uh, preferred one group of people and disadvantaged other groups of Mm -hmm. people. 
and the legacy of that is still alive. And so I want to just say one other thing about that. That's why I am so um, evangelistic about the necessity to do your own inner work. Because if you start exploring the stuff inside of you that makes you make those, uh, draw those conclusions as you were just describing, rather than looking at why do you feel that way? There's, what, are, what are your weaknesses? What are the things you're afraid of? And explore that and work on that. You end up being able to, to not have to always resort to, well, I can't talk about this because it makes me feel bad. Because you have discovered your real core and who you really are. And, and, and you don't have to always find yourself being threatened when somebody brings you information that's maybe not what you would have preferred to hear. So I'm I'm so convinced that if we don't do the inner work, the outer work that we're trying to do in the world to fix this whole business around race is never going to work because it's so connected to those to that internal process. It sounds like even though you have a real great assessment and analysis of how hard this work is, it sounds like you still have some hope. I have I have to have hope because God is not dead, as as Sojourner Truth says. As long as God is not dead, there's a reason to have hope. So yes, I do, and and I see flickers of light in people, and I do know, I do believe that at the end of the day, most people really do want to do right. I, I hold on to that, whether it's true or not, doesn't matter. It works for me, I, and it works better than assuming people don't want to do right. And so I think people. I think people can change and will change, and and I, and I wake up every day ready to go go out and try to do whatever I can to bring that message. Let's make one more movement here before we wrap up. You say that rheumatoid arthritis is 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 one of or your greatest teacher. Um, say a little bit about that. That's curious. Well, it's a chronic illness that you can't bully, you, you know, every day you have to be vigilant dealing with, I said, it's, and it taught me so much about dealing with racism because racism is like a chronic illness and you have to stay vigilant. You can't do, you know, ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist, go on as with whatever you want to do. It will take you over. So I have, I have completely reconstructed my way of being in the world because of arthritis in terms of diet and exercise and dealing with stress. And I would not, I wouldn't have gone down the paths I've gone down if I didn't have this chronic illness. And I wouldn't have learned what I've learned about dealing with racism without it either, because it's, it's been clear to me that this kind of vigilance is the same kind of vigilance you've got to have in a racist society. You, you can't take your eyes off of it. You can't quit being present to it. And that's arthritis. I know if I eat a big chunk of cake last night, then in the morning, I'm not going to feel as well, you know, so. <laughs> well, well, we'll, we'll stop there. Uh, friends, I hope you've enjoyed this. I, I have, uh, Catherine is one of my favorite conversation partners uh, and now she is a 2020 Joseph R. Biden Medal Award winner for volunteer and service. Catherine, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a delight. Thank you so much. I loved it. And anytime I would love to come and talk 
on air or not on air. <laughs> God bless.